My name's Martin. I'll be going through Proverbs. We've been going through Proverbs. Believe it or not, this is the 13th week. I can't believe that, that we've been doing that. And we're kind of coming into the home stretch. Um, last week, we were in Proverbs 20 and 21. And some of those themes that we talked about, we talked about wine, how it can be a mocker and a scoffer. We talked about the king, that lion of Judah, the one who has no equal, who could punish us, who could devour us if that were his will, but we also talked about how he's also the lamb who gave himself for us as we just uh, celebrated. We talked about justice and the value of diligence and that old character, the sluggard that kind of keeps coming out in Proverbs. Uh, A couple verses about marriage and God's sovereignty, how our cravings can get us into trouble. And we talked about how no matter how we prepare for battle, the battle ultimately is the Lord's, that the fight is his fight. And it references war horses, and I need to make a correction because one of the war horses I talked about last week was this, this horse that was a Marine, decorated Marine Corps hero from the Korean War, Sergeant Reckless. And I kept referring to Sergeant Reckless as a he. It was at, she was a mare, and she actually had four foals, in her retirement. Just a remarkable story. Again, read that if you want. But no matter how great a horse we have, that was the point. No matter how great armor we have or whatever, that ultimately it's the Lord's. And the Lord, through him, we are more than conquerors in Christ. Tonight, Proverbs 22 and 23. And these chapters mark a shift, both in content and authorship. So in chapter 22, verses 1 through 16, Continue Solomon's Proverbs. As we talked about, Solomon is the author of the majority of these Proverbs. But at at verse 17, there's a shift, and we get it, and that'll flow through chapter 24 through 34, uh, excuse me, chapters 24, verse 34, and it's what is referred to as the sayings of the wise. And these are some compilations from some wise men in the kingdom. The exact authorship is not really known, but we'll see that it's consistent with the remainder of the book and with Solomon's earlier teachings, actually. Now, these teachings, these sayings of the wise, they do bear similarities to an ancient Egyptian papyrus known as the instruction of Aminamope. And practicing that name really came in handy just then. I did that. So, <laughs> so anyway, the instruction of Aminamope is a is, is a papyrus that is preserved in the, in the British Museum of Egyptology, that section. And it, w- they, it was written around 1200 B.C., which is before Solomon's reign. And because of those similarities, there's some scholarship that would say that these passages from, again, from verse 17 into chapter 24, that they're derivative, that they are taken essentially from this Egyptian source and that this is a, uh, they even kind of speculate that it's essentially plagiarized. And um, I will say that is not a unanimous opinion. So, a few things. Certain wisdom and truths we know are universal, and it's expected to have some similarities. We know that there's even um, sources in the ancient Far East, even Mesoamerican sources like the Aztecs, that have some similar ideas that are going to be pulled out of Proverbs, right? That there's just certain human experience that we're all going to um, derive certain wisdom from every culture. 
And there's going to be an element of truth to that. But the point is, how are those truths interpreted and how are they applied in our life? Now, Egypt, we also know, had a long association with the Hebrew people. Went back at least as far as Abraham. You might remember Abraham spent some time in Egypt. We know that Joseph ruled Egypt for a time and undoubtedly had a strong influence on this culture. And his whole family, all these people came down and grew and grew until you know, the time of the Exodus. So there was a great influence of the Hebrew people within Egypt. There's a scholar, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's kind of important as we're going to go through there. His name was Peter Lepage Renouf, and he was an Egyptologist of the British Museum in the late 1800s. And he actually made a connection from this same papyrus to the rule of Joseph in Egypt. Now, it's an interesting, there's so much drama sometimes in these old science stories. We have our own dinosaur wars here. Has anybody ever studied any of that? These archaeologists, there we go, um, that were excavating the fossils up on Garden Park Road and how these guys would undermine each other and lie about each other, and, and it ruined them both financially. It's a really interesting story. We know that some really famous fossils have been derived from that area, but if you look at that scientific community, sometimes it's pretty cutthroat, and there's a similar thing that kind of went on with this particular papyrus that we're talking about. This guy was force-retired because, partially because of that, and it was his successor that's really been a proponent of that theory that Proverbs really was taken from um, this Egyptian philosophy rather than the other way around. There are scholars that think, like we think, that Proverbs is the inspired word of God and the source, not something that's plagiarized or derived from something else. Um, And there's some other stuff we're going to skip. We know that Solomon himself had a very close relationship with Egypt. His first wife was Egyptian. So there's a, there's a, there's a connection there. Um, but again, it's like these teachings, as well as the philosophy and ideology of our culture, we're supposed to take that and interpret them in the light of the revealed person of Jesus Christ applied through the prism of his sacrifice and resurrection. And that's what we see in Proverbs, and that's what's unique about these passages that we're going to go through. It's not that they have similarities to some other worldly source. It's the, it's the application, it's the interpretation through Christ himself and how we apply that in our life. Now, I'm going to jump into chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. And these, again, continuing in Proverbs from Solomon. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked, Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. So this passage, good name, a good name, and favor over treasure. And it speaks of that priority of character. There's great profit in having a good 
name. What do people envision when they hear our name? When someone else hears our name, what are they envisioning? What are we defined by? Are we known to be honest and reliable or greedy workaholics, as it kind of alludes to here? Are we known for compassion and generosity or for being stingy, underhanded, and immoral? There's certain names that you hear, and we immediately associate Trump. Now, you, there's a bunch of stuff we associate that with, right? Biden. We associate all this stuff. That's what we're talking about. What does our, when they hear our name, what is it associated with? Some people go to great lengths to immortalize their name, their posterity and legacy, all for selfish reasons. You know, these really wealthy families that make generous donations to colleges or hospitals or something to try to immortalize their name, their name. But we're not called to immortalize our name, but rather give glory to his name, to him who dwells in unapproachable light. It's that name above all names, Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved secondarily to that stuff I was just talking about, when people hear our name, is it immediately associated with or identified with that name? With that name. Oh, that guy's a Christian. That guy is all Jesus freak or whatever. They, is our name, when they hear our name, do they know where we're coming from? And it's our choices. And if they do, one more step from that, if they do, it's our choices that make that association positive or negative. We've seen the bumper sticker, Oh Lord Jesus, please save me from your followers. Have we seen that? Has anybody seen? I've seen something similar to that. But it's our choices that may, if we are going to take his name, do we take it seriously or do we take it in vain? How we live will affect people's opinion of not only our name, but most importantly, his name. And that's the name. When we hear this thing, a good name is to be chosen, that's the name we're talking about. It's not about boosting our reputation or our, or our legacy for ourselves, but are we boosting his name? And that's how I see this applied, this verse here. Again, uh, there's a lot of ways to interpret these. We always have to kind of come back to how is it interpreted from the gospel? How is it interpreted by the example of Jesus Christ himself? This next verse, it says, the rich and the poor have the same end. Now, that only bothers you if you're rich. You know what I mean? When you hear that verse, if you're poor, you're like, okay, that sounds pretty cool. If you're rich, you're like, oh, I don't want to end up like them. And it's this, it's this um, Solomon didn't like that. If we read the book of Ecclesiastes, that's something that really bothered him. And um, we get a glimpse of this existential dread that again, he elaborates on in Ecclesiastes, that working, achieving, toiling to gain the treasures of this life are vanity and chasing after wind. And that's something that he would repeat throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the rich and the poor, and we've talked a lot about that in Proverbs over these weeks, and um, I love this verse in Isaiah 24, verses 1 through 3. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest. 
As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. A time is coming when it's not going to matter what, where you fit in society and what you've done for your name. It's going to be the name that you're known by. True riches, honor, and life. God's reward to those who humble themselves and fear him. Poverty, disgrace, and death, the reward. The wages of sin, of selfish pride, and rejection of God. It's, we're all the same in the eyes of God. But again, to make his name famous, not to make our name famous, to pursue false rewards, we're told in this last part, will lead into a thicket from which there is no escape. Um, moving down to chapter 22, verses 7 through 9. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Now, I've heard that first part, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is slave of the lender. I've heard that taught as an admonition to be debt-free. Has anybody heard that? that? That you're enslaved effectively to your creditor if you're in debt. And there's a certain, there is an application there. I mean, especially in our culture, because debt often comes because we're, we've taken on too much, we've indulged ourselves, we've gone beyond our means or our impulses, and, and, and these creditors make it very easy, and you can certainly be enslaved to debt by your own actions. But in ancient times, people would fall into debt and slavery due to no fault of their own, to disability or losing a spouse. Society was very cruel, back then if you didn't if you weren't able to work we see a lot of beggars in scripture we see a lot of the poor and that's why the bible's so concerned with those who do have means of taking care of those types of people it is much like someone today that could be overwhelmed with medical debt or a natural disaster or the loss of a loved one the focus here is on the one who would use their power or position to unjustly enslave others. And let's make sure that we get that straight. This isn't an admonition to be the rich and rule over the poor so that you can enslave people. So that's kind of how it's taught sometimes. But again, there's great value in being debt-free in our culture. But the point here really is, what are we doing? Are we, do we have a bountiful eye? Are we sharing what we have with those who need it? And to not be one who sows injustice. To be generous and compassionate and not exploit others' misfortune. That bountiful eye, I love that picture. Jesus taught the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body. And when we see that, your whole body, I think of your purpose, your priorities, your plans. He says it will be, you'll be full of light. 
That is God's illumination and will. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? When we see someone in need, do we see an opportunity to bless or to be blessed? To get a good deal or to sacrifice our advantage and allow someone else to get a good deal? A lot of times you'll see a car listing or something like that, and it says, must sell quick. Oh, boy, I can't wait to get a hold of that deal. I can really stiff them. You know, I can really take advantage of that situation. That's something that God hates. Jesus always has a bountiful eye. He never looks to exploit our situation, to take from us. But he always gives and comforts those in need. Continuing in that thought, verse 16 of chapter 22 he says whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich and that's kind of alluding to bribes and things things to get your way will only come to poverty and then in verses 22 and 23 it says do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. So we see to rob, to crush, simply because they can. And you think, that is the way it works a lot of times, isn't it? You know, the rich are secure in their their houses, in their situations. They have things leveraged against everything. It is. It's the poor who are subject to these scams and these things that that um, people often fall victim to. To crush the afflicted at the gate, that speaks, it's a figuratively running someone over. We can picture that. But the gate was also where legal disputes were settled. To crush someone legally. And in this time, it would be about stealing their birthright because they didn't have the means to defend themselves, probably an orphan or someone like that. And we're going to see that in the next verse. You know, I don't know if I should go too hard on this, but once a year, our county has a tax lien sale. Is anybody familiar with that, the tax lien sale? And there's a big list that comes out, and I have, I'm, a, you know, I'm in real estate, so I happen to look at this list. There's like 500 people that are delinquent on their taxes, and what happens is you can go in and you can pay their taxes, and now they owe you. But they don't just owe you, they owe you plus 15% or whatever you can negotiate when that bid. And it's like, I'm thinking to myself, that's a good investment opportunity, (laughs) 15%. That's a great rate of return, isn't it? Do I like being taxed? Do I like paying all the taxes that I pay? Most of us in here are fairly conservative. I don't agree with all the taxes. I don't agree with the rate of taxes. But then we've got this opportunity to step in And not only be like the government, but be worse than the government. And now we can take their property in three years if they don't pay it. And when you really break that down, it's like, is that something the people of God should be doing? And that's for each one to to take to God. It's It's a legal thing. It's not illegal. Of course, it's something that helps our county in one way because the county gets the revenue that they've been delinquent on. But take that to the Lord. And we that's what we do. You know, we... We have to take those things that that are culturally acceptable and legal and look at those in the light of God's word. 
the next verse that I wanted to look at. It's, it's in the next chapter, but it goes along with this. And it's in chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. It says, Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. So moving a landmark was essentially... A, that's a property boundary marker. Are you familiar with that? So you've got, and it used to be just a big stone or something, and it would be there. And the guy would run out there at night and pick it up and move it over there, and all of a sudden he gained a few feet of his yard. And you keep doing that, and all of a sudden you've disinherited this guy. And again, the fields of the fatherless, those who can't defend themselves, who can't prove where that stone originally was, and you know that, and that's the field you pick to exploit. Now, the Lord has a special heart for orphans and widows and those who can't defend themselves. As we're told here, their Redeemer is strong. The Lord fights for us that way in the world. The great visionary prophet Zechariah reminds the exiles in chapter 7 of Zechariah of why that nation had been scattered with a whirlwind. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to hear that, and their life and their freedom was robbed from them. And I would say, let us be not like them. To take those things to the Lord, those opportunities to the Lord, that's something we've talked about before in Proverbs. Um, but as these things come back, as they're repeated, we really just need to dig back into them, I think. And, and um, that's all we'll say about that tonight. So in chapter 22, there's just a few Proverbs that I wanted to read, and I'm just going to let them speak for themselves. But it's in 22, verses 10 through 13. Drive out a scoffer. And strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. And here we have our character again. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. It's just this crazy excuse not to go to work because there's a lion outside. It's a really funny proverb. So I think those pretty much speak for themselves. Purity of heart, gracious speech. The king is our friend. Our Lord is our friend. But now let's move down. And this this is the introduction to these sayings of the wise. And so I wanted to, to, this is where that shift takes place from Solomon's Proverbs And we've already kind of peeked into chapter 23, but now we'll come back. And this is that introduction. It says, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips, that that your trust may be in the Lord. I have made them known to you today, even to you. Have I not written for you? 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge to make you know what is right and true that you may give an answer to those who sent you. Now, we're reminded in this introduction of, remember in the earlier chapters, there was wisdom was crying out. Hear 
Hear, hear what I have to say. And that's kind of the same introduction to these wise sayings. Now, I love that it says that the purpose is to give an answer, that's the last, but also that your trust may be in the Lord. That your trust may be in the Lord. Not for educational purposes. Not to satisfy our historical curiosity. Not for personal gain, but to increase our faith. Remember, Jesus would say that many times, right? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he wasn't talking about these things. He was talking about a heart that's receptive to the truths of the kingdom of God. Someone who's ready to hear and apply. Hear. And again, we see this admonition here. So there's a few sayings that deal with some familiar themes the, about choosing your friends carefully, about offering pledges or security for debts, and there's even another verse about that moving of landmarks that we talked about. But if we move down, all the way down to 22:29, and I'm going to read through chapter 23, verse 3, because it's a continuation. You know, men put those breaks in there. Really, it's one total thought. So it says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Now, recognition and prosperity can have a welcome result of hard work, but it can also be a trap, a great temptation to indulge our appetites, appetites for the good things in life, for praise, position, and flattery, and we're told to beware, to beware when we're invited. We all like to get invited, to be invited in certain situations, not to like a church potluck, but when you're invited in certain, and sometimes you should be aware of that too, by the way. But when we're voted employee of the month, when we're honored, when bank accounts or our influence swells, the temptation is to let our guard down and to stuff our face with all that they're offering, all that fleeting wealth and praise of this world. The next verses say, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. And that toiling isn't honest hard work at your job. It's working in excess to get more than you need. We're told to store up imperishable treasure in heaven, not here on earth. It can all be gone so quick, like a flying like an eagle toward heaven. And then these next verses say, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool. For he will despise the good sense of your words. I recently read Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Some of you may be familiar with that. I had seen a show and I thought, 
you know, they always say the book is better, so I'm just going to read the book. I'd never, I've read some other Charles Dickens stuff, and this is a great book. Um, the main character in that book, his name is Pip, and he's a young man who unexpectedly gets a benefactor, a mystery benefactor, someone who's investing in him to raise, he's, he's, he comes from a poor family, his, his kind of stepdad is a blacksmith, okay, but this, this, all of a sudden, this guy shows up at the door and says, I, you're going to be raised as a gentleman, and now you have these expectations is this huge inheritance that's going to be reserved for him when his training is all completed. That's what that means. And we're introduced to this ruthless attorney named Mr. Jaggers, and he's the trustee of this fund, basically. And he disperses these funds to Pip and actually some other young men that he's in charge of too, periodically until at such a time Pip is able to be independent and take his role as a gentleman, as a man of means. And there's a scene where Mr. Jaggers throws a lavish banquet for these young men. The boys eat too much. They drink too much. They get drunk and fight with one another. They argue and brag about money. And Mr. Jaggers sits back and you can just kind of picture him and he's just watching them. And he's sizing them up, and he's figuring out their weaknesses and figuring out their personalities. But it all started with him laying out this lavish banquet and them letting their guard down, and they just start acting like fools, and he starts to pick out certain character traits from these people. Now, the world can be like old Mr. Jaggers. It can spread a table for us, flatter us, but it's watching us, maybe to get us to compromise here or there, and then they have us. Then they have us. Jesus also told us to beware of men. And he never allowed himself to be seduced by such means. There's a time in Luke 7 when he was invited to the home of a rich Pharisee named Simon. And undoubtedly, there was many you know, wealthy and influential other leaders there, other religious leaders probably, other people from the community. The who's who, as they say. And suddenly, a woman, a sinner, presumably a prostitute, she begins to weep and wash Jesus' feet with her hair and anoints his feet with oil. Now, Simon the Pharisee is watching this. He's watching Jesus, and he's judging Jesus in his heart. And you think about that. I don't think he's sitting there like this. I think he's smiling at Jesus. Here, would you like more bread? But he's watching and he's calculating, and he's going to see how he can use this against Jesus, and probably the other men there were also. And Jesus just gives them this great lesson, and we're not going to go through that, but it's in, it's in Luke 7. But he honors this lady in front of them, and he shames Simon for his lack of hospitality. Simon had it completely backwards. He was the one who was the sinner, not this woman who came in repentance. The Lord wasn't worried about appearances or whether he would fit into their crowd. He wasn't trying to impress them or court their favor. What he was interested in was forgiveness in welcoming her, in honoring her love and repentance and adoration. He didn't engorge himself on their delicacies, but rather fed those present with the word of God. He was himself the bread of life. One of the warnings Jesus gives us, woe to you 
when all people speak well of you. And isn't that what we want, though? Isn't that what we want? It's hard to have enemies. I've had some enemies in my business, some, some things come up, and it's the kind of thing that keeps you up at night. It's the kind of thing that, that really gets to you when, you when you know there's someone out there that just hates you. But that's what Jesus said it's going to be like at times. Not all the time. Not all the time, but those times are going to come up. But he says, beware, woe to you, woe to you, when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now we began talking about the good name, the name that we are identified by, which defines us in the eyes of others. Some things that you'll see in marketing strategies, people that talk about, I'm gonna, I've got to get my name out there. Have you guys heard that? If I could just get my name out there, then I'd be somebody. Then I could be profitable. I'd get invited places. I'd be the center of attention. But faith says, I need to get his name out there. You see the difference? To get his name out there. Be assured, Jesus knows the names of those who love him and take on his name. There's a great verse in Revelation 3.5. The one who conquers will be clothed, clothed thus in white garments. That indicates that perfect forgiveness, that cleanliness that Jesus wants to give us. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name, speaking of your name, my name, our names. He will confess our names before, my, before his Father and before his angels. He knows us, he loves us, and will confess our name, but only when we forsake all other names, all other allegiances. That conquering, the one who conquers, the Apostle John would say in 1 John, what is it that overcomes the world? What is it that overcomes all these things that we've talked about, all these negative things? It's just our faith. It's just saying, I believe that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again and, offer, and, and, and putting our hope in that. That's, that's that conquering that allows us to be clothed in those white garments. Now, I would love to go through these last few verses in chapter 33. They are an epic description of someone who has a problem with alcohol. We talked a little bit about alcohol last week. Some of you know I'm an ex-alcoholic. I've been sober for a couple decades now, praise God. But if you read that chapter, if anybody in here has had a problem with alcohol before or still, it's, it's so dead on. It's just this great description. It talks about your red eyes and getting hurt when you don't expect it. But I would encourage you to read those last few chapters. But I want to end on the note of his name our name in the book of life, him confessing our name when we take on his name. Father, again, we worship you and we praise you tonight. We thank you for the name above all names. As the Apostle Peter stood up and told all those in Jerusalem that day, simply, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And Lord, we confess your name tonight that precious name of Jesus and all that comes with it. 
I pray help us in times of temptation this week. And thank you for the forgiveness you offer us. I, I, I pray, Lord, as these things come up in our life, that we would bring them to you and that you would direct our life, that you would lead us in your will. In Jesus' name we pray again. Amen.